Hello and welcome to another episode of JHE Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. I'm Jeffrey, minister and chaplain with JHE Ministries, and I'm glad to have you with us. Be sure to follow this podcast and you will receive notifications every time there's a new podcast. We are studying the book of Luke, and we are working our way through chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to chapter 5, and we'll begin with verse 17. Let's get into it. Now last time, we saw Jesus healing a leper, and now we shall see his continued power by healing a paralytic man, and we shall see him for, with the forgiveness of sins. So beginning with verse 17. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Now let's stop there for a moment, and let's head back up to verse 17. Jesus was teaching over a period of some time, and this event occurred on one of those days. As the news of Jesus' ministry spread, the Pharisees and teachers of the law became increasingly hostile. It seems that Jesus' reputation had aroused the attention of these Jewish religious authorities who considered it important to hear what Jesus was teaching. And here we see them assembling in Galilee with the obvious purpose of finding some accusation against Jesus. By doing this, Luke lays stress on the crucial nature of the religious issues soon to be raised. This is his first mention of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. The Pharisees had earlier in their history helped the Jews maintained the purity of their religion by teaching how the Mosaic law and the traditions that grew up alongside it ought to be applied in daily life. Many of them became rigid, they became imbalanced, and even hypocritical. Now the teachers of the law, most of them were Pharisees. They had expert knowledge of the details of the Jewish legal tradition. And so they would be expected to form an opinion about the correctness of Jesus' teaching. 
now we have Luke turns from Jesus's teaching ministry to that of healing. These two elements, doctrine and healing power, will serve as a climax in this narrative. The power of the Lord was present to heal the sick. And actually, Jesus always had the power to heal, but the circumstances were not always favorable. In Nazareth, for instance, in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, Jesus could not do many mighty works because of the unbelief of the people. And this brings us into verses 18 and 19. There are four men who brought a paralytic on a bed to the house where Jesus was teaching. These friends of this paralyzed man were motivated by earnestness and faith. They couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd. So what they did is they climbed the outside stairs of the roof. And the typical flat roofs had an outside stairway so that people were able to reach the roof. It was very common in the ancient Near East and even today that they would sleep on top of their roofs. So they climbed the roof and then they lowered the man through an opening that they made by removing some of the tiles on the roof. And roofing materials were separable and you could separate them without damaging to the roof and then they could be easily put back into place. So in verses 20 and 21, we have two declarations that form the focal point of this narrative. The first one is a declaration of forgiveness, and the second is an affirmation of Jesus's authority to make that declaration. The plural reference in the term their faith is to the faith of the four men who brought this paralytic man, though we may assume from this subsequent forgiveness that the paralytic man, he also believed. God responds to the intercession of others regarding a person in need. And those who brought the paralytic to Jesus believed that Jesus would save this man, though the paralytic salvation was an intensely personal matter between him and Jesus. Now, Jesus took notice of the faith that would go to such lengths to bring a needy case to his attention. And when he saw their faith, that is the faith of the four plus the, the invalid, the, the paralytic man, he said to the paralyzed man, man, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus's declaration of the forgiveness of the paralytic sin does not imply that it, the sin was the immediate cause of his disease. But this unprecedented statement aroused the scribes and the Pharisees. They know that no one but God could forgive sins, but they were unwilling to admit that Jesus was God. And so they raised the cry of blasphemy. <coughs> Excuse me. In Jewish law, conviction of blasphemy, which is an overt defilement of the divine name, was a capital crime that was penalized by stoning, actually throwing stones at somebody, and over time it would kill them. Now, Pharisees and teachers of the law were convinced that Jesus had crossed over the line. 
So in verses 22 to 23, Luke indicates that Jesus exercised extraordinary knowledge by having insight into one's inner thoughts. Jesus perceived their thoughts, and so he answered their thoughts. Now, he placed his challenges in a hypothetical dilemma. Obviously, while Jesus' two options are in one sense equally easy to say and equally impossible to do, in another sense, it is easier to say that which cannot be proved or disproved, your sins are forgiven. Jesus proceeds to prove to them that he had actually forgiven the man's sins. First, he asked them if it was easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk. In one sense, it is just as easy to say one as the other, but it is another thing to do either, since both are humanly impossible. The point here seems to be that it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, because there's no way of telling if it has happened. If you say, rise up and walk, then it's easy to see if the patient has been healed. The Pharisees could not see that the man's sins had been forgiven, so they would not believe. And therefore, Jesus performed a miracle, which they could see to prove to them that he had truly forgiven the man's sins. He gave the paralytic man the power to walk. So in verse 24, here is the first appearance of the term son of man in the book of Luke. It occurs in connection with the right to pronounce forgiveness rather than with the themes of suffering and glory that characterize its specific use in the other passages where it is used. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. The title, the Son of Man, emphasizes the Lord's perfect humanity. In one sense, we are all sons of man, but this title, the Son of Man, sets Jesus off from every other man who has ever lived. It describes him as a man according to God, one who's more morally perfect, one who would suffer, one who would bleed, and one who would die, and one to whom universal headship has been given to. The structure of this sentence is broken by the redirecting of Jesus' comments from the leaders to the man. Thus, a focus is maintained both on Jesus' running controversy with the religious leaders and on his ministry to the paralytic. So in verses 25 and 26, the healing validates the declaration of forgiveness. The command to this paralyzed man is impossible of fulfillment except for the power of God. In obedience to his word, the paralytic man got up, carried his small sleeping pad, and went home glorifying God. To respond took an act of obedience, which was based on faith. And take note that he stood up immediately. The healing was instantaneous. The result of this is the glorification of God, both by the man and also by the crowd. The onlookers were also filled with awe at this powerful demonstration at the very end of the passage. 
and strikingly recalls its occurrence as the first word said by Jesus after reading the Isaiah passage in Nazareth. This crowd was literally amazed, and they too glorified God, acknowledging that they had seen incredible things that day, namely the pronouncing of forgiveness and the miracle that proved it. And by including it here, Luke assures the reader that this is indeed is the awaited eschatological today. And this is leading us into verses 27 and 28, where we have the Son of Man will explain his ministry. We have the call of Levi. The succession of people on whom the Lord bestows his favor continues. We have seen his grace to a demonic, one who was demon-possessed. We, we've seen it with a leper and a paralytic man. And now we see it, it's going to be given to a tax collector. So Jesus liberates those suffering from malign spirits, from physical handicap, and also social disfavor that we will see. The antagonists, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, who were merely named in the preceding narrative, are going to be again on the scene that we're going to read. So turning back to our Bibles to verses 27, let us continue with the reading about Matthew, the tax collector. And after these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So in verses 27 and 28, we have Levi. He was a Jewish tax collector for the Roman government, and he was obviously treated by the Pharisees as a religious outcast. And such men, these tax collectors, they were hated by their fellow Jews, not only because of this collaboration they had with Rome, but because of their dishonest practices. Many of them became very rich as tax collectors. And one day while Levi was at work, Jesus passed by and invited him to become his follower. Now, with amazing promptness, Levi left all, rose up, and followed Jesus. This direct command of Jesus to follow him results in Levi's immediate and total obedience. Think of this tremendous consequence that would have flowed from this simple decision. And Luke notes both the negative aspect of Levi leaving everything and he notes the positive one of following Jesus, and this is what Levi did. Now, Levi or Matthew, uh, Jesus will change the name to Matthew. He became the writer of the first gospel, the book of Matthew that we find in the New Testament. We see that it pays to hear God's call and to follow him. And in verses 29 to 30, we have Levi puts on a banquet. And a banquet in the New Testament symbolized joy, and it often hints at the eschatological banquet. Now, the word eschatological relates to death, judgment, and final destiny of the soul and of humankind. It's the final events in human 
history. And it has been suggested that Levi had three purposes in arranging this great feast. He wanted to honor God, to witness publicly to his new allegiance, and he wanted to introduce his friends to Jesus. Now, most Jews would not have eaten with a group of tax collectors because they hated them. And, but Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. He did not, of course, fraternize with them in their sins or do anything that would compromise his testimony, but he used these occasions to teach, to rebuke, and to bless. And here, Jesus is the guest of honor, but Levi doesn't limit the guest list to his new Christian friends, you know, the disciples of Jesus. Instead of immediately cutting off his old associates, Levi invites them into his home, probably to bring them also into contact with Jesus. And Luke mentions others who turn out to be sinners as far as the Pharisees are concerned. And the joy of the participants is now opposed by the dour criticism of these religious leaders. The complaint of the Pharisees is based on their dedication to upholding the purity of Jewish faith and life. Implicit in their teachings was strict adherence to both the law and tradition, including necessary rites of purification and separation from all who moral or ritual purity might have been in question. And the scribes and the Pharisees criticized Jesus for associating with these despised people, these dreads of society as they were considered. Their complaint against Jesus is specifically directed to his acceptance of these despised people who are sitting down in a table fellowship with them. No act apart from participation in the actual sinful deeds of the guests could have broken the wall of separation more dramatically. Yet the Pharisees are not ready to argue with Jesus himself, so what they do is they direct their question to Jesus' disciples and charge them with this unacceptable conduct. And that's going to lead us into verses 31 to 32 that we will get into next time. We'll get into Jesus' answer to these Pharisees. So until next time, God bless you all and keep living Christian strong.